0: And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Christians of Laodicea, my friends, will receive the last of the seven epistles of the Lord sent to the bishop of their city. Laodicea was located southeast of Philadelphia, east of Ephesus, and across from the city of Hierapolis. The city of Laodicea was built from Antiochus II and during the years of the Revelation, about 1905 years ago. It was a flourishing center of commerce and industry. Laodicea was also known as a center of medicine and especially ophthalmology, or the study of the eyesight, the eyes. The church of Laodicea was established by St. Paul and possibly by his disciple Epaphras, as he informs us in his epistle to the Colossians. But the Acts of the Apostles give us this impression as well. The first bishop of the city seems to bring the name of Archippus, as the book of the commandments of the apostles informs us. However, we do not know for sure if Archippus was the recipient of this epistle or the second or the third bishop after him. However, the ethical, spiritual, and material state of the city seems to have left its mark and influence on the Christian Church of Laodicea and its bishop. Essentially, this was a very lively city with a very materialistic way of life, a life uh, of self-sufficiency and self-assurance, And all these elements have placed their impression and stamp and their influence in the life of not only the church, but of the bishop as well. This epistle is very rich and quite articulate, but it is also the most severe out of all the epistles, my friends. It combines beautifully harshness, strictness, along with tenderness. These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is the preface of the epistle, which includes four self-declarations of Christ, which relate to the content of the epistle. And the content of the epistle is quite similar to the imagery and the way of life and the activities of this city. In other words, the city is a successful center of commerce, so the Lord refers to wealth, a center of ophthalmology, so the Lord refers to eye or eye-drops, and so on and so forth. However, the three characteristics refer to the Word of Christ and the fourth to the work or the mission of Christ. By the first declaration, the Lord says, I am the Amen. And by this, he declares himself as God. The Amen is a title belonging to God only. We see this in Isaiah 65, verse 16, where some translators translate with the expression, God, Amen. In a translation of the 70, this is translated as God of truth. So when Jesus says, I am the Amen, this means that he has the same title that the Lord Yahweh has in the Old Testament. Consequently, Jesus Christ is Yahweh, or Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Have you noticed how many times I have brought this up? Everywhere we run into it, in the Holy Scriptures so you can become aware that this is used in the Bible a great number of times. Titles which refer to Yahweh or the Lord of the Old Testament, these same titles are also referred to Jesus Christ. I'm doing this to help you understand that the Jehovah Witnesses find themselves in a terrible heresy when they claim that the Son is a creation and not Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the Lord. St. Paul further adds uh, on this in his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him Was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. So here we clearly see, my friends, that Jesus Christ is really the amen, the sure, the true, Yahweh, the Lord God. The other two declarations that follow serve to clarify and certify the first declaration, the amen. And it shows one more time that Jesus Christ is the sure the faithful, and the true, precisely because He God and everything He says is true, sure, and right. In Him is yes, not yes and no. He yes, and He will always be this yes and the amen. This corresponds well with the verse of Paul, the Word of God is faithful and worthy of all acceptance. 1 Timothy Chapter 1 verse 15. So the word of God is trustworthy. But the word with a capital W is true and faithful. The word with capital W is faithful and true. And worthy of all acceptance. This trustworthy incarnate God the Logos. Is the fourth declaration. Which Christ gives himself. And it refers to the praxis of or the work of Christ. He is the beginning of the creation of God. I will ask you to please pay attention to this fourth declaration used by Christ. When he says, I am the beginning of God's creation, this attribute is not limited to the establishment of the church, but it extends to everything created whether visible or invisible. And here the English translation is not as clear as the Greek, and it certainly does not mean that Christ is the first creation of God, a blasphemy taught by Arius and his distant descendants, the Jehovah Witnesses. Not at all. But to help you with the meaning of this verse, I will refer you to John's Gospel, Chapter 1, verse 3, and this is what John says about Christ. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So everything, even the smallest and last pebble stone, the last cell, the last electron, all these were made through God the Word, and nothing came to existence without him. Therefore, God the Logos, Christ is the creator of everything. The word beginning, I am the beginning of the creation of God, does not mean the first created being, a blasphemy taught by Arius. Beginning does not refer to the first creation, but St. Andrew of Caesarea beautifully interprets The initial and dominant and uncreated cause of the creations. Simply meaning that he is the one through whom all things were created. So he is the initiator of all creation. So Christ is not the object of this sentence, but the subject to say it in the language of grammar. He's not the one who's created first by God, as the Arians and their leader Arius interprets. Let's not forget that Arius did not die. And Arius did not die because the devil did not die. And the devil wants to attack the divinity of Jesus Christ because Christ was his formidable adversary, even in his human nature, and his terrible condemnation unto the ages of ages. So, the devil tries at every opportunity to attack the divinity of Christ. Consequently, my friends, Christ is not the beginning as an object. How, let's say, God begins to create all things and he starts with Christ first, even though Christ was born of the Father and something born is of the same substance, anyhow. Uh, Jesus Christ is not the beginning or the first creation created by God, but he is the subject. He's the one who took the initiative. He's the initiator of all or the one who caused all things to be created. Do you see all this? He's the source, the spring of all created things. The existence of all created things, of all created beings, has its beginning in him. Jesus Christ He's the one who said, let there be light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. Jesus Christ created this light and so on. If you will, this is the touchstone. This is the button that Arius tried to press and twist to support his blasphemy. Arius, the devil, and the church fathers fought Arius because behind Arius was the devil. And the followers of Arius are surrounding us. Arianism did not go away because the devil did not go away. Today, my friends, Europe is reliving the heresy of Arius. Europe and the West in general is Arianizing. Did you know this? Father Justin Popovich explained this uh, very beautifully in his book, Men and God-Men. He dedicates a special article, a special study that refers to the Aryanizing Europe and the West. I am dwelling on this a great deal because we are now members of the common market and we will begin to have many things in common with the other European nations. Unfortunately, the godlessness of Europe And this Arianism of Europe will find its way here in Greece in such a way where we will begin to develop a different mindset. We will begin to look at Christ as a great reformer, but not as the God-men. And this is tragic. Therefore, Christ is the initiator of God's creation. He is the subject, and creation is the object is the initiating force behind the creation of all things. In Him is the beginning of all things. Everything created owes its beginning to Jesus Christ. He is the creating power or the source of all creation. St. Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, and St. Paul expresses this very beautifully, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. So if all things were created through him and for him, then how is he a creation? If he were a creation, he would be included in all this as well. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Christ. And when we offer our prayer to the incarnated God the word, we need to tremble and be full of awe because he's the Lord of the stars, the Lord of the angels, the Lord of all. What an awesome reality. I would be so happy. If you would ever come to the conscience knowledge as far as who Jesus Christ is. So with these four declarations, the preface or the introduction of the epistle closes. And it reveals that the one who will speak in the epistle to follow is the almighty God. Whose words are true and certain since he is the creator and the Lord of all. And we now come to the main topic of the epistle which is directed to the Bishop of Laodicea. I know your works. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Some foreign interpreter writes about this, in these verses, we have great words of classical complex and emotional psychological truth. Truly, my friends, these are great and heavy words. But let's see this. Who is cold? Is the one whose faith and love is frozen. Or he who is devoid of the energy of the Holy Spirit, according to St. Andrew of Caesarea. A cold man. Frozen. And who is hot, well, St. Paul says in Romans 12:11, he who is fervent in spirit, he who has a burning, boiling spirit, his spirit is at a boiling point. However, the bishop of Laodicea was neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. Is it really possible for the spirituality of a faithful to regress and from hot to become lukewarm? Is it possible for someone to taste Christ and to end up behaving at some point in the future as they never tasted Christ? And after having tasted Christ, to turn his back on him and to begin to romance with the world and with the things of this world? It seems, my friends, that it is quite possible and quite tragic. The great majority of the Christians today At least the contemporary Christians belong to this class and state. The contemporary Christians are not cold, and they are certainly not hot. Most of them, or most of us rather, are lukewarm. So here we have to do with a great class of Christians, and unfortunately this class of Christians, faithful Christians, who according to prophet Elijah are limbing with both legs. These Christians live the psychology of Israel, which Israel displayed a great ease to come forth and worship the true God, but it also displayed the same ease to run off and offer equal worship to the false gods. In this class of the lukewarm faithful, God in the world, Christ and Belial, truth and lie, Have the ability to compromise and coexist, as St. Paul says. And worse yet, these people who are able to live in both of these worlds of God and Satan, the truth and the lie, at the same time, they can boast about their high level of spirituality and greatness. That they are extremely important and very pleased with their high position. We pointed out previously, my friends that this number of Christians is quite high, unfortunately. I assure you that they make it very difficult for the church to minister to them. They're very difficult people to minister to, to try to reach. If you suggest to them to study the scriptures, they will tell you that they already know the scriptures. If you tell them to go to church, they will tell you that they are better off than all the church people who go there. If you tell them to live a spiritual life, It will answer you that that's the only way of life they know. That they already have accomplished this. And they don't see anything in their life that needs to be changed. But pitiful people. My friends, the egotism of these people rises in front of them like the Great Wall of China. Which egotism does not allow a single possibility of God's grace to work a change inside of them. Nothing at all. They do not allow God to enter their heart, to change them so they can become people of grace, people of understanding and self-knowledge. Lukewarm characters are unable and incapable of increasing their spiritual thermometer even by one degree, and yet they're under the impression that they are the best that humanity has to offer and the best of Christians. But a paradox announcement of the Lord comes to tell them You're not warm or cold. You're not hot or cold. You are lukewarm. You would be better off cold. This is a strange statement. As you know, this is a paradox, a strange declaration the Lord poses to the bishop Laodicea because cold seems to be farther away from hot than lukewarm. At least chemically, uh, lukewarm water is closer to hot degree-wise than cold water. Now, why does the Lord prefer someone cold over someone lukewarm? The psychology and the experience based on this clearly proves, my friends, that the man who is cold spiritually is able to repent. His heart has the possibility to change And he can become a very hot person spiritually. At some crossroad in his life, at some moment, a certain incident, the grace of God touches him. The right hand of the Most High, God touches him. And he turns around, he changes his life. And you can see him. Yesterday, he was immoral, unethical. Today, he's pure. Yesterday, he was mocking and ridiculing the faith. Today, he's full of piety. Yesterday he lived like swine. Today he's clean and washed from sin. What happened? He repented. How many of these incidents we have? How many? The thief on the cross was cold at first. Both thieves were mocking Christ. It is not a mistake where one of the evangelists says that both thieves crucified with him were mocking him. Whereas Luke says that one of the thieves was calling out, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is not a mistake because both of them were mocking the Lord in the beginning. However, at some point, at a certain point, a revolution took place in the soul of the one thief. Of the one thief, not the other. When he witnessed that the Lord is forgiven those who crucified him, When he saw that the Lord does not curse, when he saw his softness and leniency on the cross, he transformed, he changed instantaneously. His soul started to boil. And he said to his other companion, Who are you cursing? Who are you mocking? The Holy One, the righteous. Are we in his class? We deserve death, but not him. And he turns to the Lord, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. From being cold as ice, he suddenly blazed like the sun, and he was the first to enter paradise. This is what the experience and the psychology of the cold shows. On the contrary, the lukewarm stays always lukewarm. The one who does not budge from his position, because he's resting on his laurels, because he has the great idea about himself, as I was explaining to you previously. What caused this? St. Andrew of Caesarea provides us with a wonderful explanation of this psychology. The cold man has never tasted the fruit of faith. At some point, he tastes something. He tastes the faith, and immediately he says... This is exactly what I was looking for. And he becomes warm. However, the one who was warm at some point in the past by the Holy Spirit during baptism and then froze because of laziness and spiritual indifference, something that we are all very guilty of, he dismembered himself from the hope of salvation by scorning and criticizing the said faith, meaning... Since he observed something bad or something negative in the church, some scandal, some gossip, the very things we always hear, how can this be done in the church? He cut himself off. He's cut off from the hope of salvation. He said, why bother? I was growing up with priests and I saw how they lived. This priest used to do such and such. This priest does not believe. Why bother? There is no faith. Nothing matters. And he keeps a form of religiosity, lukewarmness, and uses the church as a coffee shop and a meeting place. This person has dismembered himself. He really has no hope of salvation with this mentality. It is truly dreadful. Let's be very careful about this. The first cause of lukewarmness is spiritual laziness, sloth, spiritual indifference. After this, since the lukewarm person does not have the desire to restart his spiritual life, to become warm again, he begins to look for anything negative in the life of the church. He gets stuck on some scandals and possibly the weaknesses of the clergy, and uh, why our church doesn't have this program or that program? Why does our church ignore this or that area? And then he slowly poisons himself from all the adverse happenings. And he destroys his hope and he withers. And the Lord now comes to do a reality check to the bishop of Laodicea. If we could only have the Lord next to us. And yet we do. We have him if we read the Holy Scriptures, if we listen to His words, and to tell whatever is necessary to pull us away from our disillusions. We all become so disillusioned. We think we are something, but we are not what we're supposed to be. We think we are. And the Lord now comes to bring the Bishop of Laodicea back to reality, and He tells him, because you say that I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have the need of nothing. Rich in the spiritual sense, of course, but from the influence of the city, which was rich due to industry and commerce. And as I told you, the lifestyle of the city places its stamp on the life of the bishop and the faithful. As you can see, we are not immune to the state that exists around us, to our environment. Recessions, inflations, Wall Street's deflations, the price of gold, silver, all these things certainly influence our lives and likewise influence our faith. So you say that you have the need of nothing you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So this is who you are. Poor, miserable, blind, and naked. This is who I am. And how am I going to deal with this? How am I going to deal with all this? When he will even reveal so many more other things in my case. And then how am I going to stand in front of you? But to think... But how will I stand in front of you and you in front of me? And even more important, how will we stand in front of the Lord? This is what matters to us, my friends. Well, even though someone may think that he's something, God comes to reveal to us our true self. For this reason, let's hurry to discover ourself before the Lord reveals this to us. And worse yet, especially in front of all people and all angels on the day of judgment. But the words of the bishop once again, because I have become wealthy and I don't need anything, a rather unwise statement. Now it's quite unwise to say this in a spiritual sense, but it is not more wise to say it in a material sense. I made my money. And I don't need anyone. How many rich people actually say this? How many of the rich talk like this? I don't need anybody. This is the psychology of the foolish, selfish, and the truly antisocial person who does not have the faintest idea how much his life is interdependent with the people around him. You pitiful person. When that piece of steak gets wedged in your throat... While entertaining yourself at the restaurant of the year you will see what another human being means any human being rich or poor and you have the audacity to say that you don't need anyone you're antisocial and an audacious egotist and incurable egotist if you say that you have become wealthy and you do not need anyone Before that we need to constantly take spiritual self inventory am i warm do i feel the burning of the holy spirit inside of me do i feel the spiritual members of my existence upright do i have spiritual impulses and inclinations and do i get excited and do i feel god's presence in different areas of my life do i weep and mourn for the bad things which exists in the church? Is the flame of missionary work burning inside of me like it was burning the bishop of Philadelphia and he received praise from the Lord? Am I a person of faith and boldness and not a child who draws back, as St. Paul says in Hebrews 10.39? Do I love the Lord deeply, deeply enough to consider everything rubbish for his love? On the contrary, is it possible that I am cold? Is it possible that I am altogether cut off from the energy of the Holy Spirit? As Saint Aretha says, Is it possible that I have become a mobile refrigerator of faith and love? Is it possible that I have reached the point of being cruel, harsh, emotionless, merciless, maybe uncaring, antisocial, individualistic, hardened, unloving, tearless, having a heart of stone, and worse yet, is it possible that I took a couple categories from those things that refer to being hot and a couple categories of those things that refer to being cold, mix them together, thus having the hot qualities become lukewarm and finally ending up being neither cold or hot, but lukewarm? And of course, this means that I end up being nothing, Five adjectives, one after the other, are used to classify this state by the Lord. Don't you know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? My friends, let's consciously name ourselves wretched so we can be happy someday. Let's acknowledge how miserable we are all by ourselves and how poor so the lord will not have to tell us what he says in the verses of the parable if they invite you to a banquet go and sit at the last place all the way in the back because you will tell yourself that i am insignificant i'm unimportant and don't do this out of an inferiority complex because this is egotism Feelings of inferiority stem from egotism. But to truly have the consciousness that I am nothing, unimportant, wretched, miserable. And then the friend who invited you will come and tell you, my friend, come up front. I want you to sit closer to the front and not back there. Come up front. Come on up here. On the contrary, the Lord says in this parable, the banquet, about those who want to be first, If you go and enthrone yourself in the first position, he will tell you, I'm sorry, but this seat is reserved for someone else. And while everyone will be seated, you will have to get up and start looking for a seat. But all the places are taken and you will have no choice, but you will have to go and take up the seat all the way at the last row, the last position. And of course, this will be very embarrassing. So this is it. That's why, my friends, let's recognize our wretchedness and our poverty. Let's do this on our own. Let's also acknowledge the blindness of our soul. And in doing this, we will begin to see the things that cannot be seen by those who claim that they can see. Let's also recognize our nakedness in the area of holiness. Let's not claim that we are saints. And then Christ will envelop us with virtues, with virtues granted to us by his grace. If we fail to do this, his threat is around the corner. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I will vomit you. As you know, if we want to induce vomiting, we drink lukewarm water. That's why it is such a beautiful epistle. It is so greatly and so well aimed. When we drink tea or some other beverage, hot chocolate or coffee, whether it is hot or lukewarm or even cold, we don't feel like vomiting. If we drink water very cold or even very, very hot, uh, we do not vomit. Now, now why don't you try lukewarm water? Your stomach will begin to feel funny. you will begin to get nauseated. And that's why Christ says, you are lukewarm. Figuratively speaking, he's saying, I tried to drink you, but I became nauseated, Christ says, and I will vomit you. So the hot is found in the area of God's love. The cold, those that are cold, has many, have many possibilities of becoming hot, but the one who was hot in the past and suffered a loss of temperature. He has basically no hope. His state has no hope because, as I told you previously, he lives the psychology of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness or self-assurance. The result is the the rejection by the Lord. However, there still seems to be some margins based on God's philanthropy. I will vomit you. I'm about to vomit you. Watch, doesn't say I'm vomiting you but I will vomit you and it is like saying I am giving you some time yet to make the necessary adjustments and something more. I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. Truly, all these things, as the Lord says, I counsel you to buy from me. All these things are to be found in Christ. Because Christ is the gold, the precious treasure. And when someone finds this treasure... He sells everything to buy the land which contains the hidden treasure. Christ is the precious pearl. And when someone finds it, he sells all the other pearls bought before. Pearls, diamonds, rubies. He sells it all to buy this one and this only precious pearl. Christ is the white garment and the wedding gown as well. Friend, he says in the parable of the wedding banquet, Friend, how did you enter here? How did you enter without having a wedding garment? I see your bridal chamber, my Savior, in its full splendor. And I don't have a wedding garment to enter therein chant during Holy Week. I don't have a garment, meaning I see your kingdom. This is the bridal chamber of Christ, the kingdom. But I don't have a garment. I have not been clothed of you, because those who were baptized in Christ have been clothed with Christ, St. Paul says. You have put on Christ. As many as have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So come and buy from me garments that you may be clothed so when you move about, the people will not see the shame of your nakedness and laugh at your expense. I will tell you a very common example. When you don't have Christ, you get drunk and walk the streets, and you may even take your natural clothes off, and the people laugh at you. When you don't have Christ, and you lack the criterion of modesty, and you bow down to the latest expression of fashion. Sometimes you look like a clown, and people laugh at you. They laugh behind your back. Let's say you're a senior citizen. You're up there in years, but you think and act like a teenager. You dye your hair, you use very heavy makeup, and you look like a clown. When you have the measure of modesty when you have Christ, then you don't make people laugh when you walk. You can walk without being ashamed. In addition, my friends, Christ is the light of the world. And he who has this light, of St. John the Evangelist says, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. By this, he means that you will have the eyes of the soul healthy and wide open. So use the eye ointment called Christ my brother, and your eyes will be open and you will be able to see clearly. Christ truly is the eye salve for spiritual vision. And when you take the Holy Scriptures in your hands, you will then say, what do I see? Things that I could never see before. Yes, because the eye drops, the salve that you used, remove the scales from your eyes. In other words, Christ came, And he opened your eyes. After this harsh and strict language of our Lord to the Bishop of Laodicea, did you see how he talks to him? Harshly. After these harsh words, now the moderation of the language follows, which explains the purpose behind this strictness. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. So, my friends, as many as I love, I rebuke the Lord's harshness here is moved by his love. St. Andrew of Caesarea says, what philanthropy with how much goodness this reproval is mixed with. So the spring of this harshness is love. The Lord is forced to be harsh because of his great love and philanthropy. The love of God. Oh, this love of God. This true and pure love of God. Not like the love that you have for your children, my friends. The love that sends them to hell. Because it makes you not want to see their faults. You fail to correct them. But you caress them and you overlook their passions. And their sinfulness. And their sidesteps. And you justify them. This sort of love sends to hell. Christ truly loves, but his love is intertwined with discipline, a love that stabilizes and prepares for the kingdom of God. Reproof and discipline are the two means of God's correction and love for men. This is precisely what the Word of God advises in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 11. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. Do you spank your neighbor's child? No, you only spank your own child, hopefully, because you are only responsible for your own child. Along the same lines, God only disciplines those that belong to him. He only chastises the children that he accepts as his own. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? And this is to our great benefit so we can become partakers of his holiness, so we can become participants of God's holiness. For this reason, the Lord urges the bishop of Laodicea to repent, and show forth the necessary zeal to return and to rectify his stand. Therefore, be zealous and repent. After this chastening and the justification for this chastening, a great scene of special tenderness takes place, one of those rarely found in the scriptures. The judge pulls back and the friend appears with the most tender expression. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come inside towards him and dine with him and he with me. How beautiful. These words, my friends, reminds us of the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. There in the fifth chapter, we read, I am sleeping, but my heart is awake. My beloved is knocking upon the door. My beloved brother is knocking at the door. Such beauty. Behold, I stand. Who? God is standing. Behold, I stand. God stands in front of the human existence and wants to establish a working relationship. Where are all those idealists who believe and say that it does not seem proper for the divine highness for God to get involved with the lowliness and the misery of the human being. In this exact point, we can find the greatness of God, that God comes, reaches all the way, and draws near each human existence. I stand knocking at the door. The human freedom of the soul is represented by the door which stays shut even to God himself. It's creator who's the absolute owner of their hearts. And even God himself stands outside. This is so profound. God stands outside of a person's heart. And here, one can plainly see how much God respects Human freedom. Christ only knocks at the door. He does not force the door. Of the human soul. And the human freedom. This I keep knocking. Gruel. I keep knocking. And this is in the present tense. In the Greek uh, language. Which shows. Continuous action. I keep knocking. And this shows the persistence. Of divine love. St. Andrew of Caesarea says, My presence is unforceful, Christ says. I only keep knocking at the door. And to those that open, I share in the joy of their salvation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and here we see Christ. Christ is patiently awaiting the human response. The voice of Christ, my friends, is heard only by those who belong to Christ, only those who have a good disposition. Only these people open their heart with joy. They open the door of their heart to Jesus Christ. And I will enter inside him, and I will dine with him and he with me. What a great display which shows how close, however close God wants to be with his people. God wants to live inside our house, the house of our heart, to be with us. Despite the lukewarmness of the Bishop of Laodicea, my friends, the Lord speaks with this great tenderness, with such love and closeness. This is the banquet of God's kingdom. And this banquet, while on earth, is the great sacrament of divine Eucharist. And the word of God himself said, He who eats my flesh stays in me, and I in him. I will come in and dine with him and he with me. It is also the great banquet of God's kingdom in the age to come, which is the eternal vision of the person of the person of Jesus Christ. The conclusion serves to end not only this epistle, this most great epistle, so strong in reproval and tenderness. It concludes not only this epistle, but also all the other epistles. It serves as a general conclusion. To him who overcomes, to him who is victorious, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who is he who wins? Who is the victor? The one who overcomes? The one who defeated all these three things. He defeated the world. He defeated his passionate self. And he defeated the devil. My friends, what a great invitation sent to us by the Lord. He who wins against these three temptations is invited to sit with Christ on the eternal throne of his glory and blessedness during the absolute and final triumph of Christ, but the final triumph of the faithful as well. Here, the first part of the book of the Revelation comes to an end. The first three chapters, which is the vision of Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ who supervises, who oversees his entire church, and he sends either praise or criticism. And this for all the things that take place in the church. In the introduction of the book of the Revelation, this is described by the words, "a ah, you see, these things that are. And now the second part of the book of the Revelation begins with the fourth chapter with the opening of heaven and behold I saw a door standing open in heaven which are the things that will take place after this that's verse 119 write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this meaning the future of history but it also includes eternity as well By God's grace, we will begin the fourth chapter and the second part of the book of the Revelation at our next meeting. My dear friends, all those whose heart is thrilled with the word of God, and open the door of their soul to Christ, who knocks, they are ready to dine with him, and he will dine with them. These are the great and rare moments of the soul which meets its Lord and begins the great and eternal feast with him.